In the new heroism, the goal is to transcend individual life with its petty pains and loves in favor of the dazzling collective. This is Jim Fallon, Director of Project Narrative at The Ohio State University, and I'd like to welcome you to the Project Narrative Podcast. In each episode, a narrative theorist selects a short narrative to read and discuss with me or another host. Today, I'll be talking with Sean O'Sullivan, who has selected a short story by Jennifer Egan called Black Box. Egan originally published the stories as, as a story as a series of tweets in May and June of 2012. The complete story was then published in The New Yorker, also in June 2012. And Egan has now integrated it into her new novel, The Candy House, published in April of this year. Sean will comment on this publishing history later in the podcast, though our main focus will be on the story itself. Sean O'Sullivan is Associate Professor of English at Ohio State, a core faculty member of Project Narrative, who has also served as Project Narrative's director from 2014 to 2016. Sean's expertise includes narrative theory, Victorian studies, and film and television studies. He's the author of a book entitled Mike Lee, which was published in the University of Illinois Press series on contemporary film directors. Sean has also published numerous insightful essays that set up two-way traffic between the theory and interpretation of serial storytelling in the medium of television. I'd especially like to single out Sean's brilliant essay, Six Elements of Seriality, published in the January 2019 issue of Narrative. Project Muse, which tracks such things, reports that since its publication, Six Elements of Seriality has taken its place among the journal's most frequently consulted essays. Sean, is there anything you'd like our listeners to know before you begin reading this story? Yeah, a few things. Uh, thank you, Jim, for inviting me. Uh, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, before I say anything about the particulars of Black Box, uh, I do want to note that the story is too long. I have a considerable amount to read in its entirety. So I'll read the first 17 stanzas. I'll explain what I mean by stanzas, um, then provide a, a brief summary of the intervening material, and then read the final seven stanzas. Sounds good. And one of the, a couple other things, uh, there are sort of two challenges uh, to reading this story uh, aloud. Uh, and since I chose the story myself, I have no one to blame uh, for the potential <laughs> impediments that these challenges may produce. So first, um, as you noticed, you've noted, um, Jennifer Egan um, issued Black Box as a series of tweets. Uh, to get a little more granular, um, the story was published between May 24th and June 2nd, 2012. Uh, two years after the publication of Egan's A Visit uh, from the Goon Squad, a book uh, with which Black Box is intimately connected. The tweets were published between 8 p.m. and 9 p.m. every evening uh, in one-minute intervals. This adds up to 60 tweets per hour, or roughly 600 tweets for the entire story. Yeah. There are actually 607 uh, tweets. She cheated mm -hmm. a little in the final installment. Um, and these tweets are themselves grouped into 47 uh, numbered clusters, which I'll refer to as stanzas. So while there's a regularity in the daily tweet distribution, the stanzas themselves are irregular in length, varying anywhere from three tweets to 30 tweets per stanza. So all of this is just to highlight the sort of interruptive and segmented quality of the text, uh, which reads a little bit like a collection of epigrams or sort of alternatively right, lines yeah. of verse, mm -hmm. all of which were sort of in counterpoise uh, to the storytelling flow that, that we're sort of asked to glean uh, from the narrative. Yeah, nice. So that's one issue. And I'll endeavor to honor both the interruption and the, and the continuity in the reading. And the second thing, a little more briefly, is that the voice that guides us, and we'll talk about this obviously as well, through the text is one suggestive of a kind of CIA bureaucrat of some kind mm -hmm. who walks our protagonist through the purposes and protocols of the mission in which she's embarked. And that bureaucratic voice is not so much narrate as instruct, producing a kind of flatness of affect that is central to the, you know, designed to, central to the story, but not, not always congenial, at least initially, to the kind of absorption that we may want in, in a story of this kind. So these challenges, again, are central to the way uh, Black Box is constructed, um, but they create certain difficulties and are warming to the story as it, as it unfolds. So I just wanted to sort of right. set the stage for that before I start reading. Yes. No, that, that's good. Very helpful, I think. Okay. 
So now here's Sean O'Sullivan reading Jennifer Egan's short story, Black Box. One, people rarely look the way you expect them to, even when you've seen pictures. The first 30 seconds in a person's presence are the most important. If you're having trouble perceiving and projecting, focus on projecting. Necessary ingredients for a successful projection. Giggles, bare legs, shyness. The goal is to be both irresistible and invisible. When you succeed, a certain sharpness will go out of his eyes. Two, some powerful men actually call their beauties beauty. Counter to reputation, there is a deep camaraderie among beauties. If your designated mate is widely feared, the beauties at the house party where you've gone undercover to meet them will be especially kind. Kindness feels good, even when it's based on a false notion of your identity and purpose. Three, posing as a beauty means not reading what you would like to read on a rocky shore on the south of France. Sunlight, sunlight on bare skin can be as nourishing as food. Now, even a powerful man will be briefly self-conscious when he first disrobes to his bathing suit. It is technically impossible for a man to look better in Speedos than in swim trunks. If you love someone with dark skin, white skin can look drained of something vital. Four, when you know that a person is violent and ruthless, you will sense violent ruthlessness in such basic things as his swim stroke. What are you doing from your designated mate amid choppy waters after he follows you into the sea may or may not betray suspicion. Your reply, swimming, may or may not be perceived as sarcasm. Shall we swim together towards those rocks? May or may not be a question. All that way will, if spoken correctly, sound ingenuous. We'll have privacy there. May sound unexpectedly ominous. Five, a hundred feet of blue-black Mediterranean will allow you ample time to deliver a strong self-lecture. At such moments, it may be useful to explicitly recall your training. You will be infiltrating the lives of criminals. You will be in constant danger. Some of you will not survive, but those who do will be heroes. A few of you will save lives and even change the course of history. We ask of you an impossible combination of traits, ironclad scruples and a willingness to violate them, an abiding love of your country and a willingness to consort with individuals who are working actively to destroy it. The instincts and intuition of experts and the blank records and true freshness of ingenues. You will each perform this service only once, after which you will return to your lives. We cannot promise that your lives will be exactly the same when you go back to them. Six, eagerness and pliability can be expressed even the way you climb from the sea onto chalky yellow rocks. You're a very fast swimmer, uttered by a man who is still submerged, may not be intended as praise. Giggling is sometimes better than answering. You are a lovely girl, maybe meant straightforwardly. Ditto, I want to fuck you now. Well, what do you think about that? Suggest a preference for direct verbal response over giggling. I like it. Must be uttered with enough gusto to compensate for a lack of declarative color. You don't sound sure indicates insufficient gusto. I'm not sure is acceptable only when followed coyly with, you'll have to convince me. Throwing back your head and closing your eyes allows you to give the appearance of sexual readiness while concealing revulsion. Seven, being alone with a violent and ruthless man surrounded by water can make the shore seem very far away. You may feel solidarity at such a moment with the beauties just visible there in their bright bikinis. You may appreciate at such a time why you aren't being paid for this work. Your voluntary service is the highest form of patriotism. Remind yourself that you aren't being paid when it climbs out of the water and lumbers toward you. Remind yourself that you aren't being paid when he leads you behind a boulder and pulls you onto his lap. The dissociation technique is like a parachute. You must pull the cord at the correct time. 
too soon, and you may hinder your ability to function at a crucial moment. Too late, and you will be launched too deeply inside the action to wriggle free. You will be tempted to pull the cord when he surrounds you with arms whose bulky strength reminds you fleetingly of your husband's. You will be tempted to pull it when you feel him starting to move against you from below. You will be tempted to pull it when his smell envelops you, metallic, like a warm hand clutching pennies. The directive, relax, suggests that your discomfort is palpable. No one can see us, suggests that discomfort has been understood as fear of physical exposure. Relax, relax, uttered in rhythmic, throaty tones, suggests that your discomfort is not unwelcome. Eight, begin the dissociation technique only when physical violation is imminent. Close your eyes and slowly count backward from 10. With each number, imagine yourself rising out of your body and moving one step farther away from it. By eight, you should be hovering just outside your skin. By five, you should be floating a foot or two above your body, feeling only vague, vague anxiety over what is about to happen to it. By three, you should feel fully detached from your physical self. By two, your body should be able to act and react without your participation. By one, your mind should drift so free that you lose track of what is happening below. White clouds spin and curl. A blue sky is as depthless as the sea. The sound of waves against rocks existed millennia before there were creatures who could hear it. Spurs and gashes of stone narrate a violence that the earth itself has long forgotten. Your mind will rejoin your body when it is safe to do so. Nine, return to your body carefully as if re-entering your house after a hurricane. Resist the impulse to reconstruct what has just happened. Focus instead on gauging your designated mate's reaction to the new intimacy between you. In some men, intimacy will prompt a more callous, indifferent attitude. In others, intimacy may awaken problematic curiosity about you. Where did you learn to swim like that? Uttered lazily while supine with two fingers in your hair indicates curiosity. Tell the truth without precision. I grew up near a lake is both true and vague. Where was the lake conveys dissatisfaction with your vagueness. Columbia County, New York suggests precision while avoiding it. Manhattan betrays unfamiliarity with the geography of New York State. Never contradict your designated mate. Where did you grow up? Asked if a man who has just asked you the same is known as mirroring. Mirror your designated mate's attitudes, interests, desires, and tastes. Your goal is to become part of his at atmosphere, a source of comfort and ease. Only then will he drop his guard when you are near. Only then will he have significant conversations within your earshot. Only then will he leave his possessions in a porous and unattended state. Only then can you begin to gather information systematically. 10. Come, let's go back, uttered brusquely, suggests that your designated mate has no more wish to talk about himself than you do. Avoid the temptation to analyze his moods and whims. Salt water has a cleansing effect. 11. You will see knowledge of your new intimacy with your designated mate in the eyes of every beauty on shore. We save lunch for you, may or may not be an allusion to the reason for your absence. Cold fish is unappealing, even when served in a good lemon sauce. Be friendly to other beauties, but not solicitous. When you're in conversation with a beauty, it is essential that you be perceived as no more or less than she is. Be truthful about every aspect of your life, except marriage, if any. If married, say that you and your spouse have divorced to give an impression of unfettered freedom. Oh, that's sad. Suggests that the beauty you're chatting with would like to marry. 12. If your designated mate abruptly veers toward the villa, follow him. Taking his hand and smiling congenially can create a sense of low-key accompaniment. An abstracted smile in return, as if you've forgotten who you are, may be a sign of pressing concerns. 
The concerns of your designated mate are your concerns. The room assigned to a powerful man will be more lavish than the one you slept in while awaiting his arrival. Never look for hidden cameras. The fact that you're looking will give you away. Determine whether your designated mate seeks physical intimacy. If not, feign a wish for a nap. Your pretense of sleep will allow, you, allow him to feel that he is alone. Curling up under bedclothes, even those belonging to an enemy subject, may be soothing. You're more likely to hear his handset vibrate if your eyes are closed. 13. A door slides open, uh, signaling his wish to take the call on the balcony. Your designated mate's important conversations will take place out, outdoors. If you're within earshot of his conversation, record it. Since beauties carry neither pocketbooks nor timepieces, you cannot credibly transport recording devices. A microphone has been implanted just beyond the first turn of your right ear canal. Activate the microphone by pressing the triangle of cartilage across your ear opening. You will hear a faint whine as recording begins. In extreme quiet or to a person whose head is adjacent to yours, this whine may be audible. Should the whine be detected, swat your ear as if to deflect the mosquito, hitting the on-off cartilage to deactivate the mic. You need not identify or comprehend the language your subject is using. Your job is proximity. If you are near your designated mate, recording his thoughts and his private speech, you are succeeding. Profanity sounds the same in every language. An angry subject will guard his words less carefully. 14. If your subject is angry, you may leave the camouflage position and move toward as close to him as possible to improve recording. You may feel afraid as you do this. Your pounding heartbeat will not be recorded. If your designated mate is standing on a balcony, hover in the doorway just behind him. If he pivots and discovers you, pretend that you are on the verge of approaching him. Anger usually trumps suspicion. If your subject brushes past you and storms out of the room, slamming the door, you have eluded detection. 15. If your designated mate leaves your company a second time, don't follow him. Deactivate your ear mic and resume your nap. A moment of repose may be a good time to reassure your loved ones. Nuanced communication is too easily monitored by the enemy. Your subcutaneous pulse system issues pings so generic that detection would reveal neither source nor intent. A button is embedded behind the inside ligament of your right knee if right-handed. Depress twice to indicate to loved ones that you're well and thinking of them. You may send this signal only once each day. A continuous depression of the button indicates an emergency. You will debate each day the best time to send your signal. You will reflect on the fact that your husband, coming from a culture of tribal allegiance, understands and applauds your patriotism. You will, you will reflect on the enclosed and joyful life that the two of you have shared since graduate school. You will reflect on the fact that America is your husband's chosen country and that he loves it. You will reflect on the fact that your husband's rise to prominence would have been unimaginable in any other nation. You will reflect on the joint conviction that your service had to be undertaken before you had children. You will reflect on the fact that you are 33 and have spent your professional life fomenting musical trends. You will reflect on the fact that you must return home the same person you were when you left. You will reflect on the fact that you've been guaranteed you will not be the same person. You will reflect on the fact that you had stopped being that person even before leaving. You will reflect on the fact that too much reflection is pointless. You will reflect on the fact that these instructions are becoming less and less instructive. Your field instructions stored in a chip beneath your hairline will serve as both a mission log and a guide for others undertaking this work. Pressing your left thumb, if right-handed, against your left middle fingertip begins recording. For clearest results, mentally speak the thought as if talking to yourself. Always filter your observations and experience through the lens of their didactic value. Your training is ongoing. You must learn each step you take.
When your mission is complete, you may view the results of the download before adding your field instructions to your mission file. Where stray or personal thoughts have intruded, you may delete them. 16. Pretend sleep can lead to actual sleep. Sleep is restorative in almost every circumstance. The sound of showering likely indicates the return of your designated mate. As a beauty, you will expect to return to your room and change clothes often. A fresh appearance at mealtimes is essential. The goal is to be a lovely, innocuous, evolving surprise. A crisp white sundress against tan skin is widely viewed as attractive. Avoid overbright colors. They are attention-seeking and hinder camouflage. White is not technically speaking a bright color. White is nevertheless bright. Gold spike-heeled sandals may compromise your ability to run or jump, but they look good on tanned feet. 33 is still young enough to register as young. Registering as young is especially welcome to those who may not register as young much longer. If your designated mate leads you toward dinner with an arm at your waist, assume that your attire change was successful. 17. When men begin serious talk, beauties are left to themselves. How long have you been divorced? Suggests the wish to resume a prior conversation. A few months, when untrue, should be uttered without eye contact. Or what was he like, your husband? May be answered honestly. From Africa, Kenya, will satisfy your wish to talk about your husband. Black, with eyebrow raised, may indicate racism. Yes, black, in measured tones, should deliver a gentle reprimand. How black? Suggests that it did not. Very black is somewhat less gentle, especially when accompanied by a pointed stare. Nice, hints at personal experience. Yes, it is nice. Contradicts one's alleged divorce. Was nice is a reasonable correction. But not nice enough, with laughter, indicates friendly intimacy, especially when followed by, or too nice? Okay, so that's the end of stanza 17, um, and I'm now going to read the... Um, uh, Stances 18 through the 40th. So um, this long section narrates sort of the core of, of the action uh, sequences of the story. So skipping over the over these parts may seem slightly perverse uh, choice on my part, but these are, are um, the most recognizable sections of Black Box in terms of the kind of story's development of the deployment of the genre, um, of the endangered uh, international spy. So um, these events are perhaps the easiest to convey um, to our listeners. So briefly, so right after the section I've just stopped at, uh, our protagonist is taken by her designated mate uh, via speedboat to a new location uh, where she meets a different, uh, perhaps even more sinister, uh, brutish male villain. The first man ends up abandoning her, um, and she's uh, required to have sex with the second man, uh, whom the bureaucratic voice terms her, quote, new host, unquote. Our protagonist, once again, deploys the dissociation technique to manage this violation of her body. She then takes advantage of uh, a moment of nighttime quiet to capture the contents of the new host's phone through the sci-fi technique of a, quote, data surge, uh, unquote, which uploads the information directly into her body um, through her toes. Uh, just as she uh, finishes transferring the data, she is discovered by the new host and his female consort. Um, our protagonist manages to fight her way through this, uh, encountering, uh, through this encounter, uh, dodging a, a hail of bullets. As she's running, she discovers that she's been hit by a bullet in her right shoulder. Uh, at this point, uh, the voice of the bureaucratic uh, instructor reminds her of the paramount importance of not getting captured since, quote, your physical body is our black box. Without it, we have no record of what has happened to you. Uh, what is, sorry, what has happened on your mission, unquote. This is the only time in the story, with the exception of the title, in which the phrase black box um, is used. And now we pick up our story um, as our protagonist scrambles down um, a rocky shore and discovers uh, another speedboat, most likely hidden by the, the new host as a means of escape. And she sees that uh, the keys of the boat are, are in the ignition. Okay, so, yep. 41. Slither between branches and board the boat. Untie it and lower its motor into the water. Be grateful for the lakes in upstate New York where you learn to pilot motorboats. Fluff up your hair with your functional arm and essay a wide, carefree smile. A smile is like a shield, 
It freezes your face into a mask of muscle that you can hide behind. A smile is like a door that is both open and closed. Turn the key and gun the motor once before aiming into the blue-black sea and jamming the accelerator. Wave and giggle loudly at the stunned, sleepy guard. Steer in a zigzag motion until you are out of gunshot range. 42. The exaltation of escape will be followed almost immediately by a crushing onslaught of pain. The house, its occupants, even the gunshots, will seem like phantoms beside this clanging immediacy. If the pain makes thought impossible, concentrate solely on navigation. Only in, speci only in specific geographic hotspots can we intervene. While navigating toward a hotspot, indicate an emergency by pressing the button behind your knee for 60 continuous seconds. You must remain conscious. If it helps, imagine yourself in the arms of your husband. If it helps, imagine yourself in your apartment where his grandfather's hunting knife is displayed inside a plexiglass box. If it helps, imagine harvesting the small tomatoes you grow on your fire escape in summer. If it helps, imagine that the contents of the data surge will help thwart an attack in which thousands of American lives would have been lost. Even without enhancements, you can pilot a boat in the semi-conscious state. Human beings are superhuman. Let the moon and the stars direct you. 43. When you reach the approximate location of a hotspot, cut the engine. You will be in total darkness, in total silence. If you wish, you may lie down at the bottom of the boat. The fact that, you're, that you feel like, sorry, the fact that you feel like you're, like you're dying doesn't mean that you will die. Remember that, should you die, your body will yield a crucial trove of information. Remember that, should you die, your field instructions will provide a record of your mission and lessons for those who follow. Remember that, should you die, you will have triumphed merely by delivering your physical person into our hands. The boat's motor movement on the sea will remind you of a cradle. You'll recall your mother rocking you in her arms when you were a baby. You'll recall that she has always loved you fiercely and entirely. You'll discover that you've forgiven her. You'll understand that she concealed your paternity out of the faith that her own inexhaustible love would be enough. The wish to tell your mother that you forgive her is yet another reason you must make it home alive. You will not be able to wait, but you will have to wait. We can't tell you in advance what direction belief will come from. We can only reassure you that we have never failed to recover a citizen agent, dead or alive, who managed to reach a hotspot. 44. Hotspots are not hot. Even a warm night turns frigid at the bottom of a wet boat. The stars are always there, scattered and blinking. Looking up at the sky from below can feel like floating, suspended, and looking down. The universe will seem to hang beneath, beneath you in its milky, glittering mystery. Only when you notice a woman like yourself, curled and and bleeding at the bottom of a boat will you realize what has happened. You've deployed the dissoci dissociation technique without meaning to. There's no harm in this. Released from pain, you can waft free in the night sky. Released from pain, you can enact the fantasy of physical, sorry, the fantasy, the fantasy of flying that you nurtured as a child. Keep your body in view at all times. If your mind loses track of your body, it may be hard, even impossible, to reunite the two. As you walk free in the night sky, you may notice a steady rhythmic churning in the gusting wind. Helicopter noise is inherently menacing. A helicopter without lights is like a mixture of bat, bird, and monstrous insect. Resist the urge to flee this apparition. It has come to save you. 45. Know that in returning to your body, you are consenting to be racked once again by physical pain. Know that in returning to your body, you are consenting to undertake a jarring re-immersion into an altered state. Some citizen agents have chosen not to return. They have left their bodies behind, and now they shimmer sublimely in the heavens. In the new heroism, the goal is to transcend individual life 
with its petty pains and loves in favor of the dazzling collective. You may picture the pulsing stars as the heroic spirits of former ancient beauties. You may imagine heaven as a vast screen crowded with the dots of light. 46. If you wish to return to your body, it is essential that you reach it before the helicopter does. If it helps, count backward. By eight, you should be close enough to see your bare and dirty feet. By five, you should be close enough to see the bloody dress wrapped around your shoulders. By three, you should be close enough to see the dimples you were praised for as a child. By two, you should hear the sound, sorry, you hear the shallow bleeding of your breath. 47. Having returned to your body, witness the chopper's slow, throbbing descent. It may appear to be the instrument of a purely mechanical realm. It may look as if it has come to wipe you out. It may be hard to believe that there are human beings inside it. You won't know for sure until you see them crouching above you, their faces taut with hope, ready to jump. Okay, excellent, Sean. Thank you very much. So we have a lot to talk about. Um, but why don't we start with uh, some of the things you were saying before the reading, um, and particularly the idea that this story was originally published as a series of tweets, which in a way makes it a, a, you know, a serial narrative, which is something that you've thought a lot about, written very well about. Um, so, you know, you want to maybe just start with that and talk a little bit about the seriality of it? Sure. Um, I might backtrack a little bit and sure. talk about a Visit from the Goon Squad, which, as I said, is, is the story that right. this is clearly in conversation with. And again, one of the interesting things about Black Box is that Hypothetically, it's readable without the knowledge of, of Goon Squad. But if you know Goon Squad, you figure out after a while that the, the protagonist, who we know is Lulu in Goon Squad, but is interestingly not named in, in Black Box. Um, uh, so we decipher that. So there's a kind of serial connection on the one hand between right. a book, uh, Visit from the Goon Squad, which was not published serially. Um, but this creates a kind of serial conversation with it because it came out two years later. And then quite obviously, as you mentioned, her most recent book um, – Candy House um, is more visibly a uh, serial. Um, and, you know, there's another layer to this, because, um, again, uh, as far as I'm aware, Egan hadn't read anything that was technically a serial before this. There was a kind of disruptive, intermittent quality to, to Goon Squad, but it's not literally. Yeah. I mean, there were piece stories she reads, piece, she right. published individually, but there was no, in fact, she herself said she didn't know what Goon Squad was that she was working on, and there was no intent. But an interesting interview that I've sort of referenced a couple of times in some articles I've written, she talked about sort of two of the big influences on Goon Squad were both uh, Marcel Proust, which she was reading, which obviously, given that Goon Squad is about time and memory, um, but also Proust, obviously Proust's book is a serial serial novel, but also she talks about um, The Sopranos as Mm -hmm. an influence, uh, which again seems surprising since there's no sort of content connection between The Sopranos, but she talks about the way that Sopranos was, uh, she was watching as she was reading uh, writing Goon Squad, there's a sort of lateral feeling to The Sopranos and the way it sort of plays with some sense of, of both the ostensible seriality of a book, of a story told over 13 installments mm-hmm. and so forth, but would have episodes that didn't do that. So it's at least her cutest way of saying that there's different kinds of seriality that are yeah. kind of, some are influential in terms of her, her readings, some have to do with sort of the 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 relationship of a story world, mm-hmm. and then some of them, right, as you asked initially, have to do with the the nature of a tweet, which is in, issued in a kind of very regular installment. And, of course, that's another interesting aspect of seriality. Some serials are very are very regular, right, mm-hmm. and how they're mm-hmm. distributed to us, and that creates a certain kind of expectation or experience. Others, you know, if you think about, well, I guess, technically episode one <laughs> or the first film yeah. of Star Wars came out much later than the, than, yeah. than the first trilogy, so there's, there's a very different kind of relationships there. So she's really created a set of a number of different kinds of registers or, or, or inflections of seriality just by writing this one story that were yeah, quite right. present in the original novel. Yeah, and, and I think in a way it's interesting to think about the sort of the systematic um, tweeting, right? You talked about, you know, every night at this for an hour, right? Um, and, and so that was kind of reliable and you could depend on it. But then if you think about Goon Squad, Black Box, Candy House, it's like no necessary sort of temporal um, intervals between them. Like when Candy House came out, we didn't really know, uh, you know, that it was 
like season two or right. season three or however right. we would think about it, right? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, and um, yeah, I mean, because one way of thinking this isn't well, it's partly about seriality in a way, or about the kind of because, I mean, right? As you said, as you said, and I mentioned earlier, there's there are certain forms of seriality. They're extremely, they can be extremely um, rule bound, right? right. I said this one, yeah. the the sixty tweets per hour, and then the sense of, and you know. Goon Squad as a whole, right, it bounces around in time from various places. So clearly it's interested in certain recurring characters and concerns, but there's no – it's hard to read the book and understand its system, at least openly, where there's a kind of, there's a kind of uh, blatancy, right, of system by which um, the distribution of, of um, black box operates. And, you yeah. know, all of these things are interesting technologically, if you're going to call them, or formally. But they're also really interesting in terms of what black box is about, right, which right. is partly okay. about these sort of systems that could be sort of – Helping, but asphyxiating. These are kind of r- these rules that that well, which we govern our lives. Obviously, in a in a genre story like this, you have to have rules about you know whether it's shaken, not stirred, right? Uh-huh. The kind of serial yeah. in a way, or whether it's in the case of this, you know, the kind of rules you have to follow. So there's a kind of rule bound, you know, di- digesis, right? Uh-huh. But it also seems arbor- arbitrary at the same time sometimes. And I think that distinction between the rules can, that can be shaping and, and give logic but can also seem arbitrary, right, is something that serials often interestingly wrestle with. And I think not just through the structure of the story but through the experience of, I'll call her the protagonist, since she's not named, uh, the protagonist kind of reflects some of that tension between ritual, if you want to call it that, yeah. or... or um, formula. Or yes, yeah. formula or systemization. Yeah. And the sense of, even if it within the story, I mean, she has all these rules, but she has to do a lot of improvising at the same time, right? right. So that collision, which obviously a lot of narratives have, but um, the kind of enforcement of a certain serial contract or design here makes it visible for us in ways that it's not true in other stories necessarily, either by Egan or other people. Yeah, yeah, right. And then I think... Um, there's also the way in which the sort of the construction of the story um, and the constructor is, you know, evident. Like so, um, in, in Black Box, I think we get it through the the, the numbering uh, and the organization of the tweets into st- what you're calling stanzas, right? So you have this. I think in terms of a of an audience, here we have this sort of immersion in the. Uh, the tweets and the the you narration and so on, um, and then at the same time we get pulled out of that. To, oh, here's a new number, right? And right. We go from three to four, sixteen, seventeen, whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah and there are also the variations in the numbering technique and in, in the version. So I, I don't think we actually said that this, not just that Candy House exists, but this story exists. It's the only one I think that was previously published that's in Candy in House. Candy House, right? But right. And it's and there pretty we much are. the same, but the, the numbering is a little different because of the stands, which is interesting. Right. Sorry, right. Yeah. Say? No, she does do that. Right. And I think uh, maybe just to um, say a little bit more about uh, f- flesh out a little bit some of what you were saying about the connections between the three. Um, so in Candy House, the um, it's not called Black Box, the, the chapter title is Lulu the Spy 2032. So we have her named, we have the, the exact, uh, well, not exact, but a, a specific year uh, named uh, and so on. And also, you know, in here, in the, the second uh, half that you read, we have, like, you've forgiven your mother and all that stuff. So there we get connected to... Um, her mother Dolly, who we also saw in Goon Squad, and right. and the father, the you know who uh, Dolly had this encounter with a celebrity, and right. so on, and, and both of them also reappear in Candy House. So there's a way in which some of what we're getting in Black Box gets picked up and extended uh, in Candy House. Right. Yeah, and uh, it's another version that I was mentioning about sort of irregular because, you know, two years apart is pretty close still, certainly given yeah. how big Goon Squad was, but then you have to sort of wait 10 more years right. um, for, and she wrote, she wrote an, at least one other book between the two, so it's not right. as if, but right. um, uh, I was trying to think what you were saying a second ago about, um, oh, the fact that, right, the fact, and I was, I think I mentioned to when we were talking ahead of time that I was somewhat annoyed <laughs> that she called the the book version of this Lulu 2030, 2032 because um, one of the pleasures often of Goon Squad is that you have to t- figure out yeah. 
relative dates and locations and as a kind of fun sort of right. hunting around and right. uh, yeah. reading reading Black Box, you get these hints that she's 33, but you'd have to know, going back to Goon Squad, that she was nine in 2009, I think is the year, yeah. Yeah. to figure out that she's – so there's this kind of obviously intertextual uh, detective work that – Clearly, right. is right. one of the things that she's interested in in all her, or certainly in all three of these texts. Um, so, um, yeah, you know, she, she, I gives, you Jennifer a Regan, I, she gives you a shortcut. I mean, I'm sort of curious. I mean, I'm not going to email her about this, but I think it's interesting because, I mean, obviously, there's the context, and that's obviously a big thing about serials, right? When you put it in certain a different kind of array, right, mm-hmm. of of narrative clusters, right, which has a yeah. serial context, the the interplay is different. Whereas Black Box obviously works. Because almost an opposite between, you know, Black Box is about absence, right, or kind of non-definition. So they're almost like opposite titles. Black Box is a kind of like non-title in a way, or obviously refers to her identity, but also the sense of of this kind of non-information, right, as opposed to, you know, Lulu 2032, which is directly informative. Because I don't think in any of the – I can't remember about Black – in Candy House, but certainly I don't think there are any titles, any chapter titles in – Goon Squad that have years in them, right? So it's no, almost like the opposite right. move that's that she right. does. Yeah. So that's yeah. interesting. That's kind of this, well, partly because yeah. maybe the difference between the emphasis on time itself in Goon Squad, right? Yeah. That time is gets equated with the you know the Goon Squad is time, yeah, yeah. Um, and so on. But yeah, yeah, no. And so a lot of it, yeah. And she does a lot with prolapsis and yeah. flash forwarding, and, and then as you say, you know, having to guess, uh, like, so where are we? And so the last chapter, we know it's. You know, sort of future from right. the date of publication and things like right. that. Yeah, and also the story world, right? Because one thing, um, as much as there's incredible variety of of focalizations and and you know organizations of time, and you know, and sometimes there's first person narrative and third person narrative, and sometimes fractured narratives in, in Goon Squad. Um, you know, broadly speaking, um, you don't get a huge variety of genres within that book if you think of mm-hmm. genres as being like detective story or Western yeah. or whatever. And so one of the things that's interesting about um, Black Box is a you know, follow-up to, to Goon Squad is how obviously incredibly genre-driven it is for very, very specific genres. And obviously genres have often their own rules. Some of those right. rules are organized by time or they're organized for certain kinds of, you know, restrictions or certain mm-hmm. kinds of sometimes arbitrary um, – uh, limitations that yeah. also serial, not that all serials are are are, 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 um, are genre uh, narratives necessarily, but there's they do share a sense of like you know you know where you're getting one when you're getting one, and then right. how is it playing with that? And serials often either through their design or through the you know a lot of serials are genre driven, not all of them. I mean even you know Sopranos is a you know, the mob story and so forth, right? Deadwood is a Western, so it's not as if they're, you know... Um, so that's another thing that's interesting about this. I mean, among many things that are interesting about the story is how the genre, uh, the very strong, right, genre flavor, mm-hmm. um, in some ways differentiates it, right, from other things in Goon Squad, but also makes us aware, of, again, kind of, of rules and, and how one interprets based on rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah good, right. Yeah, so maybe we could um, say a little bit more about the genre and... and Relationship to the technique, right, sure. and and maybe specifically with the voice, right. So, you you talked uh, earlier, you know, identified a voice of a CIA bureaucratic kind of institution, right. Um, and uh, I wonder though if we could talk about some other layering there, right. It's almost uh, like at times I think we do get that clearly, and she quotes from it, and so on. Um, but there are also times it seems like, you know, she is um, sort of using that voice to address herself. Um, right. You know, so, you know, and that, and that the sort of the unfolding of the action of the spy genre comes in this um, you will or, you know, these sort of aphoristic things. Um, you know, and that, that kind of creates an interesting relationship, I think, between the events of this you know the spy thriller and the delivery of that so we maybe have some thoughts about that yeah i'm not sure i have fully formed thoughts on that but i do think this i mean broadly speaking right clearly again i don't want to bring it back always to the author figure but there's a kind of interest in experimentation right mm-hmm. Regan and, and a lot of her fiction um obviously especially these these three interrelated pieces and as you say, right, there are moments when you could take, you know, two or three sentences out of it and it would, you know, cleanly fit into, right, a kind of a spy novel. And there yeah. are times when you could take a few out, like when she's talking about, 
you know, her mother, right? right. It seemed right. like an autobiographical or, or a, you know, um, autodiegetic, you know, memoir or, or autodiegetic, you know, um, just narrative of, of youth. Um, but get other times, right, either they're, they collide with each other, right? So even on that sentence by, or a tweet by tweet, you know, yeah. basis, you get these sort of like, um, like, you know, thesis, antithesis, kind of synthesis things of, of different uh, genre codes, but uh-huh. some, but sometimes they're, they're more mixed. And I think it's one of the fascinating things about the story is that it can go from 100%, you know, of one yeah. kind of genre, right. one to make feel more intimate. And then right. not just within a stanza, right, but certainly, um, you know, across you'll feel these kind of, um, you know, relationships between them that are not always, you know, predictable. I mean, one of my favorite sections, which is, you know, the dark section, if you want to call it that, is when she's, I mean, I think raped is probably the correct word for mm-hmm. it, when the first time, and then she's just dissociating, and you get these right. sort of images that are almost like little haikus, right, of just like the sky. And yeah. and those are interesting because clearly they're reflective of her personality, but there's a kind of, you know, blankness of tone there, but we, the context, and of course this is how we often read stuff, the context, yeah. but because of the, the fractured nature of it, it kind of really, you know, it makes, in some ways, to me anyway, reading it even makes that sequence even more disturbing, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Because we don't right. get her voice. Right, right. Uh, and yeah. we get to sort of and we imagine, right, this is how yeah. she's processing this. And so right. that, right. that you know, that those sequences are affected by genre where women are forced to do certain things, you know, um, based on narrative demands or whatever. Um, but also the sense of, I mean, obviously there's a very strong sense of, texture and place, mm-hmm. right, in, in the story in terms of the rocks and the blue Mediterranean, right. obviously her growing up, you know, with boats and so forth. So we get these moments that are, I wouldn't say pure description, but are the description of just sight, you know, of, of texture and of rocks and, and sky um, because of the context. And again, mm-hmm. this is not unique to, to, to this book, the story, or just reality, but, but the interruptive nature makes these kinds of um, – uh, gestures sort of stick out in stick a way. Stick out, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, and I think the other feature that's worth commenting on, and partly because of uh, Egan's own, uh, you know, interest in temporality, is the fact that it's a present tense, right. you know, and that connects maybe with the, the tweeting and so on. But um, is this interesting sort of present tense and then also this, you know, explicit use of a future tense, like a you, a will, right? But it's almost like a future present, right? Mm. I mean that that the you know these things are happening as uh, as they're being narrated in uh, with the future's uh, you know form, right? right? You know, grammar is future, but the event is seems to be happening in the present. Yeah, is that? Yeah, I think that's that's definitely. I mean, a, a key feature of of. I mean, again, I feel as I said, there's sort of this. She's all these different variables that she's interested in, right? And she plays them yeah. off differently in different stories. And so, some of the things you're talking about are definitely specific to um, to black box. And certainly, the, I mean, but whether it's the future and the present and how they collide, as you say, I was yeah. as you're talking, I was thinking about a story, which is the tenth story in Goon Squad called Out of Body, which right. has some interesting connections with this because it is a second person present story. Yeah. I think it's the only one that's second person present. Yes. And it's about um, a character who we've read about before, and then this is the story about how he dies drowning. So actually, mm. there's really interesting connections between. Without Lulu's not in that story, right? Yeah, uh, right. It takes place in 1993. There's no. It, it is about the beginning of a technology. One of the characters is someone who sort of invents right. the internet or right. whatever. Right. And then he becomes a big character in right. Candy House. Um, yeah. So it's interesting how she takes some of this. I mean, it's probably the closest of a chapter of Goon Squad to this one in mm-hmm. terms of second person drowning, you know, this kind of sense of intimacy and loss, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, on a generic level, it's completely different, right? right? So yeah, there's, yeah. it's a really interesting way that, that she often does. She's saying, well, if we take yeah. three of these simple elements and, and flip them, um, right, or, right. you know, right. we create we, this sort of kaleidoscopic right. Um, right. And I relationship. Think, yeah, yeah, and I think it's it's very much connected to sort of, we could say, larger kinds of experiments with narrative, right? right? That, that, okay, you know, I'm going to juxtapose all these things. Corrine uh, uh, Brancroft has written about uh, what she calls braided narratives, mm-hmm. right? And I think Goon Squad is one, this is another one. Yeah. But she, I think what you're saying is that the braids themselves are, uh, you know, not just events and, and, you know, we see characters here and then we come back to them later, but they're, the braids are also... Uh, you know, being woven through these formal things, right? These, right. these elements of seriality that get right. twisted. Right. So we have a braid sort of between out of body 
and black box, right. which is not a parade of character and event. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. and clearly, thematically, you know, she's obviously interested in connection, right, if you've read. Yeah. And one of the lines that, you know, the this tweets that probably stuck out to me the most, which is near the end of the story, um, when, she, when we're hearing about the sort of the new heroism and the yeah. line is, in the new heroism, the goal is to transcend individual life with its petty pains and loves in favor of the dazzling collective. And this is clearly a thematic thing that that, right. that a lot of Goon Squad and, and Candy House are interested in. But of course, that's also the nature of the kind of stories that Janet Egan is interested in, right? Yeah. The relationship between, you know, individual stories, right, right. and dazzling collective. And she's seems to me equally interested in both, right? right. And also the fact right. that dazzling collectives, you know, they're kind of wish fulfillments, right? Uh-huh. It's not that you can guarantee a dazzling yeah. collective and that, you know, whether it's the internet or, or music, which is the kind of main anchoring element of Goon Squad, is this device for connecting and maybe, col- you know, and collecting? Um, but right. it's not as simple as that. No, right? it's not. Yeah. yeah. And let's only maybe press on that in terms of, of the black box and then go back to some of the other things you were talking about, like the... You know the way in which what happens to Lulu's body or the protagonist's body, right? So on the one hand, we have her, you know, subjecting herself to these sexual assaults. On the other hand, you know, her body is the black box, right? right? And that the uh, you know the the downloading of the data from, is is that's her mission, right? And the language of the bureaucracy is that that's what matters. Right. right, you don't matter, right? right? And this here, the the idea of, you know, you're doing all this for the collective. It's kind of like, you know, <laughs> I mean, I suppose the question is, well, can we can we infer something about in this, you know, at least in, in terms of black box and and these lines about sacrifice and the individual and the collective, given to the CIA agency. Can we infer a kind of right. critique um, on, on Egan's part of that, right? Right. This is an ideology that needs this language, right, to sell, yeah. you know, you on the right. on the apparent necessity. And, of course, it's fascinating that it's so vague, right? I mean, we don't have yeah. any idea, you know, A, whether it's bullshit, right? right? right, right. Um, it's interesting yeah. that her husband seems, I mean, it seems, I guess, we're supposed to buy the fact that her husband actually is endorsing this, as he says, but we don't quite know why. Why has she been chosen? There's a lot of... A lot of gaps, right? Right. Um, but it's interesting in terms of I just remember thinking this as you were talking about between how this again how the spy genre in particular, um, and I don't want to offend any uh, fans of you know spy fiction, including say Mikhail or something like that. But there is a kind of obviously technocratic element, right, to a lot of yes. spy, especially kind of James Bondian, mm-hmm. um, just for Nolan esque rights. Uh, and there's a sense that there's sort of nothing in, in the, there's a kind of shell quality to it, that there's no variation. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm a little harsh about James Bond as a character or the, the name of the protagonist in the film Tenet, which has a lot of interesting relationships to a film that came out yeah. a couple years ago yeah. by Nolan that has some interesting relationships to Black Box, not intended necessarily by either one. Um, and so what happens when, right, the world gets gets reduced either to ones and zeros, however you want to think about it, to this sort of technological, you know, um, you know, Elon Musk kind uh-huh, of, you know, uh, triumphalism, yeah, right, right, which right. in some ways she's interested in exploring and her, yes. her books do that. But at the same time, this story in particular, by foregrounding that and then yeah. by right, reminding us of these things about her parenthood, you know, her parent, her paternity or, um, and, you know, the sense of, of loss. Right, her own individual, so the this, individual story. Right, right so right. there's this collision between um, a fascination with um, – the physical, you know, and how it, how it creates art and how it creates identity um, across Egan's work, but then also the sense of what gets lost, right, yeah. when um, gadgets um, or the visible world becomes the way that we decide what our lives are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, too, like that, that all, that, you know, so something like, I think the one, the one sort of line that we get about the nature of the mission is still vague, right? But it's like, if it helps, imagine that the contents of the data surge will help thwart an attack in which thousands of American lives would have been lost, right? Right. So I think what you were saying before about, well, how do we take this, right? Is this just, you know, BS or, you know, standard kind of, you know, nationalistic kind of stuff, you know, um, sacrifice for the collective and so on. Um, but also, I think the idea that this is, 
this is maybe also, you know, Lulu remembering this um, as a way of, well, maybe this will help, right? And so the idea that maybe what um, she's seeing and telling herself and so on, and what Egan is asking her audience to see and think about aren't completely converging, right? That we may be seeing more than than she does. Um, For sure, yeah. That makes sense, yeah. Um, by, by she, you mean... I mean Lulu. Lulu right. I mean I have to yeah. say Lulu because she said that <laughs> I, I wanted to just did, call the protagonist. I told myself I wouldn't call her Lulu. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's a shorthand, right? right? Anyway, yeah, um, yeah, and I think, and I think we talked before about the different voices, and you know whether you were, obviously there's Lulu's voice crucial to the story, and obviously this unknown voice, and then whether you want to call it some other arranging. And I, I think I mentioned that there's this famous yes. word something that's used for 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 Joyce's Ulysses as the arranger is one way of thinking about it that is somehow distinct from the the author, right? I'm yeah. not saying I'm, I'm not saying, but I think there's something about the way that Egan is, um, you know, she's recognizable probably through her, her formal play and her themes and her interests. Um, but I think, you know, as you say, the things we have to sort of figure out, whether it's fact, you know, relationships or whether it's what's actually going on here, right? I think, mm. you know, there's a caginess, obviously, that's constructed, right, about how we can figure out what we're supposed to take about the narrator, the the arrangers, or whatever you want to yeah. call it, or just the author's, you know, position in all this. Because even that phrase that you quoted, right, even the phrase "thousands of American lives," even that phrase sounds so familiar from either, not, you know, right. the you know, Afghanistan or whatever. That there's something right. about that formulation that I think right. rings both recognizable, but also is completely generic, right? Right. And, right. Exactly. And so that kind of yeah. You know, rhetoric of of uh, you know, I want to call it bland, not bland, but of kind of uninflected un patriotism, yeah, right? As opposed right. to the very you know the fine grain mm -hmm. stuff so, that you get here, and how do the, how do we make sense of that both within the story, but also um, within the kind of world that that yeah. we're asked to inhabit? Yeah, yeah, no, good. Um, so we're coming to the end of our time, but I I, I do want to ask you to just talk a little bit about the ending. Um, you know, we sort of. Um, and on this, you know, the end of the spy story, the end of the um, sort of the representation or being inside uh, the protagonist's consciousness and so on. Um, but we don't have a clear sense of whether the mission is successful or any of that. I mean, so, you know, what do you make sense? Do you feel like it's a satisfying ending or? Um, well, I'm on record as being against satisfying things, yeah, at least yeah. in seriality. Yeah. I've written about that, actually. Yeah, right. So I'm not inherently against that, but I do think yeah. it's an interesting choice on in, in her part, especially when it's a standalone story, right? Because, uh, I mean, it's, I mean, when the other story, we didn't, there are a lot of stories that, are, of course, in, in, in Goon Squad that could connect to this, but the most obvious one is the final one, because it does take place in the future, and, right. it's, and it's the one time we see Lulu as sort of an adult. So this interest in some sort of futurity that will either explain things. And that's that's an interesting story because that ends with a kind of very clear kind of return, return right? We right, begin it, right. we end just, and there's a kind of, whether you want to call it satisfaction or neatness or yeah. or formal a transparency there, to that. Kind of, Whereas right. here, and obviously it's a standalone, so it's a different, the burden is different. But yeah, I mean, I think as with a lot of potential spy stories, right, our assumption is, with exceptions, right, that the hero's going to go, the heroine's going to get rescued, or why we invest yeah, in all this, right. and something terrible, with, obviously with exceptions, and clearly the force of all this, whether it's the, the emotions, right, of her husband and her family right. that are foregrounded, from her point of view anyway, right, right. I, I think it's where the tension is between the narrative she wants to end with, yeah. and obviously the narrative that the CIA wants to end with, or whatever you want to call them, but as you say, there's a sort of, just as there's so much the subjunctive, right, in the future yeah. are, the, are the modes of, of the story that are we're being asked very much to, to to close that circle, right? But, you know, as you say, you know, of the last five tweets, three of them begin with, it may, right? right. Now, again, right. that's not atypical for the story, but it's it doesn't... Right. Um, it's not definitive. Especially as a tension with the previous uh, stanza, which, like a lot of others, has a sort of countdown. I think that yeah. countdown thing, which obviously makes sense... Right. Hygienically, as her trying to make it master the world, but here there's a sense of okay, if you can count, you can control, you can you know you can manage. Um, but right, I mean, we're yeah. we end with this moment of, of crouching and faces taut with hope. Right, that's the last line. It's not yeah. taut with you know realization. And I no, think conviction. Or that's anything. clearly yeah. Yeah. where she's among other places explicitly using our our very strong genre expectations and our strong sort of 
you know, personal narrative expectations, right? Um, yeah. But not necessarily promising us, right? right. That, right. that they'll tie right. together. And I think right. that that clearly that openness um, is something that I mean, it creates more suspense, obviously. But it also, yeah. as you were saying before, it opens up some questions about what are, what are the what's the contract of these kinds of genres, yeah. and and you know, what is the cost of fulfilling that that contract? Maybe right, right, yeah, no, great. Just one note there that. Um, it also sets up some more stuff in Candy House, right? right. So we, we, Egan does return to her after this chapter, and we see some of the aftermath of right. her experience. But we just always but no. one of the all fascinating things yeah. about you know episodic television, yeah. example, right? They right. have to they there's a bunch of episodes afterwards, but we treat the episode potentially as its own object, and yeah. so it has a sort of double right. existence. Right. And so while I think Candy House stuff is obviously relevant, there's still a kind of independence potentially yes. of how we treat this, and that's yep. true for a short story within a broader narrative experience, but also very partic- true for a lot of how serials operate, too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a great note to end on, so uh, I want to thank Sean for today and just say that... Um, we welcome uh, feedback um, through our Twitter account uh, at uh, PN Ohio State um, or on our Facebook page, uh, just Project Narrative. Uh, and that in July, uh, I will be joined by Frederick Aldama, who will be reading and discussing um, Cortazar's A Continuity of Parks. <laughs>